Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning to the other nine of you that are, that are in this uh, building with me, which is <laughs> great to see you guys. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Just go straight there. We'll be looking at that in a few minutes here. As both Pastor Ed and Pastor Liz have mentioned, today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, the last Sunday of Advent. And as we, we've been looking at some unexpected figures in this sermon series, um, in the genealogy of Jesus as shown in Matthew's gospel, namely the women. And as I mentioned last week, these genealogies were meant to say something. So whoever they were written for, the lineage was meant to speak about who that person was that we're expecting to come at the end of it, of, of their identity and their purpose. So if we're looking at the genealogy of the Messiah, specifically the Messiah, the lineage says something about who this Messiah is. That's Matthew's purpose in this. And as we've been finding out, God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promises for this Messiah has come to fruition through some really unexpected people. And this next character doesn't even get included by her own name. She's known mysteriously as the wife of Uriah, a woman who ended up marrying King David in the narrative that we'll look at. And if you know the story, you know that this isn't exactly the greatest moment in Israel's history for Israel's most familiar king. It's a rather scandalous story, in fact. One of those stories in scripture that you read and you kind of wrinkle your nose and you go, why is that in here? <laughs> how, did, how did that get into our holy Bible? And why would this woman get an honorable mention in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus? Again, wouldn't have been, it wouldn't it have been more appropriate in this situation to just kind of shove her aside and forget that the whole thing ever happened? You know, other, other than that little episode, David was a pretty good guy. He was a good king. He was a hero of the faith. And Israel was looking for another king like David. So Matthew's purposefully then pushing things about David in this genealogy because he's a messianic figure. To be a son of David was to be a son of the promise. But by mentioning this wife of Uriah, Matthew's very clearly acknowledging this not-so-tiny dark stain on David's legacy, the king who was meant to point to the Messiah. Why would he do that? Why would he acknowledge so obviously the elephant in the room, as opposed to simply ignoring it and moving on? Why is she important to mention at all? Well, evidently, this, this was a situation, this was a person whom God had, chose, had chosen and wanted to work through. She meant something to the early Christians that Matthew was speaking with, and so she means something for us as well. Matthew doesn't even want to call her by her own name, so he doesn't even mention her like he mentions everyone else. What's going on there? But how does this woman and her situation point us to the coming of Emmanuel? Those are the questions that we want to wrestle with this morning. She's mentioned at the start of the second grouping of names in the genealogy, Matthew 1, verses 5 through 6. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, who we looked at two weeks ago. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, who we looked at last week. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And with that, we're going to look at 2 Samuel 11 now. We're going to read verses 1 through 5, um, and then I'm going to just give a bit of a summary of, of kind of what follows after that, and we'll finish reading verses 26 to 27, okay? So 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 5. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained 
in Israel. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Now, of course, this is an unfortunate situation for David. So he sends word, to just to give you a bit of a summary in between here, he sends word out to Joab to bring Uriah back so he can talk with Uriah. And of course, then what David tries to do is to, is to sort of make it so that it looks like Uriah did the deed, right? So he tries to get Uriah to go back to his home, um, be with his wife, spend, spend the night with her, etc., um, so that it'll look like he was the one that got her pregnant. And Uriah, being the righteous man that he is, knows that his army is out in the fields. The Ark of the Covenant is there. It's a holy war, it seems to be. And he will not in any way advantage himself above his other soldiers. So he doesn't do it. He doesn't, he doesn't go back to his home. He doesn't do what David asks of him. And so what David ends up doing is sending a message to Joab saying, hey, put, put Uriah on the front lines. Um, essentially, do what you would not normally do with your army and essentially try to get Uriah killed. And so what ends up happening is that Uriah gets killed in battle based on where Joab puts him in the army ranks. Um, and then word gets it back to David saying that Uriah has died. And then we're looking, we'll finish here with verses 26 to 27. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So just to create a little bit of a backdrop here for this story, this was the time, this was the season when the kings went off to war, as it says. So it was a strategic time of the year, typically after the winter rains had kind of come and gone, and there were several months then of spring before the harvest. So this was the time when the kings would kind of sound the army alarm, gather all of their troops in, and go out to war, because once the harvest came around, you would need all of your men to be working in the fields. So the kings would go to war, and sometimes, on rare occasions, for political or physical reasons, the king would actually stay back um, and take care of some other details. Now, that was supposed to be a, a rare occasion, and this text makes it pretty clear that David doesn't really have any good reasons for staying behind. Joab is gone. All of his servants are gone. The text even says all of Israel, all of Israel's army is out there. Even the Ark of the Covenant, as Uriah tells him, is out there, which represents God's presence. The God of Israel is out there. In other words, everybody is out there, except David. David, for whatever reason, stayed behind on his couch, of all things. And at this time of year, after a hot day, you know, a pleasant walk around to refresh yourself was nice, often on the rooftops where you could feel the cool breeze of the Jerusalem air. That's where a lot of folks would go to socialize in the privacy of their own roof. So obviously David is, is lapping in the life of luxury here. He's not exactly worried about the people, the troops, his armies, out wherever they are. And it just so happens that the king's privacy from the palace also enables him to sort of invade someone else's privacy. Because he's able to take a gander over into the neighboring roof, onto the neighboring roof, where a woman happens to be bathing. Now, why she's bathing on a roof 
is one of the most baffling things that we've never really figured out. And everybody thinks a little bit differently about this. But besides the point, based on the text, it, it states clearly that this is an act of purification after her menstrual cycle. And the reason the text said this is twofold. So it states, one, that she's definitely not pregnant right now at the start of this story. And two, it's prime time, or at least almost prime time, for her to get pregnant. So a bit of a spoiler alert, in other words. Now, David's already on a bit of a roll here for forsaking his kingly duties. So shocker of shockers, David sees this beautiful woman, finds out who she is, and then summons her to his palace. Now, some commentators will try to put a little bit of the blame on Bathsheba, as if she's kinda, she was trying to seduce the king a little bit. But let's be real. There is no indication in this text, in any way, that she was at fault in this situation. In no way is the writer of 2 Samuel trying to put her at fault. We're talking the ancient world here, where women were more often than not seen as property, okay? This whole notion of consent doesn't mean squat in this time period. The woman, this woman, had been requested to come before the king of Israel. So, you know, you go. You don't really have a choice in the matter. So no matter how you look at it, this text makes abundantly clear that David's the doofus in this situation. And in no way, then, when we look at Matthew's genealogy, in no way, then, does Matthew make apologies for what David did. Matthew highlights Bathsheba, remember, as Uriah's wife, because legally, that's who she was. That's who she was. Uriah, who shows more righteousness and dignity and discipline in this story than King David himself. And poor Bathsheba, her name actually means daughter of oath or daughter of an oath. So her name actually implies this identity of a, of a, of a bond, of, a, of an oath, of, of a covenant even. Yet tragically, all she's known in scripture for is an oath-breaking situation. This whole, this whole story is just a bit of a gong show. A real Hallmark kind of story, you know, for getting us into the Christmas mood. Why on earth would Matthew want to remind us of this story when we're looking at the coming of the Messiah? When introducing the coming of Jesus, why would he want us to remind us? Why would he want to remind us of this? Ruth, who we looked at last week, was this shining exemplar this, of, of sacrifice and loving kindness, including her into the genealogy. It was like, okay, that, that's logical. But Bathsheba? I don't care how you flip this thing. It does not make sense. But here's the thing. What stands out in all of this? in all of this mess, that the promise which matters most, the covenant that God made with David, that he would never cease to have a son on the throne, that through his descendants the promises would be fulfilled, that covenant is not broken. It's still there. No matter how messed up this situation is, that's still there. It didn't, it didn't stall or stop the process or the promises. God is yet moving to bless the nations through this lineage regardless of David's failures. 
And although she doesn't shine as brightly as Ruth or Rahab, she doesn't have this great moment of faith or or acknowledgement of the God of Israel, Bathsheba is the one actually who later on is employed to remind David of these promises that are meant to go through his son Solomon. She knew something was up because in 1 Kings, when the throne is looking like it's going to get usurped by someone else, she and the prophet Nathan go, they collaborate, and they remind David of these promises that were made to him, of what had been promised, that there would be a son, in this case Solomon, who would build a house for the Lord, the one who would, who would have the nations of the world come to him for wisdom, a son who would point the world to this God and carry on this lineage. And that promised son, as we find out, came through the wife of Uriah the Hittite. If nothing else, this woman shows us that you just never know when God may want to use you for something significant. We emphasized this last week with Ruth, and as I mentioned earlier, this this genealogy was written specifically in a way that pointed to the coming Messiah. It says something about who the Messiah is and what we can expect of him. As Will Barclay puts it, if Matthew had ransacked the pages of the Old Testament for improbable candidates, he could not have discovered four more incredible ancestors for Jesus Christ. Surely there is something very lovely here. Here, at the beginning of his gospel, Matthew shows us in symbol the very essence of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ, for here he shows us the barriers going down. The very fact that all of these women were Gentile, or at least connected to a Gentile, points to, as we emphasized last week, the greater mission that God is on, that began with Abraham and continues throughout the whole scriptures and unto today. The God of Israel is on a mission to break down walls, to build bridges, to bring every people group, every tribe, every tongue into himself, into his holy dwelling, to get his name out and to bring people in. But not just that. That is hugely significant, and we see that all over Scripture. It's hugely significant. But Matthew wants us to grasp one more thing, I think. These characters don't just point to the global mission of God. They point to how he's going to achieve it. Through messy, broken, sinful, and terribly misguided people, not so different from you and I. People that point to Jesus because they point to his gospel of mercy. And it is amazing, considering that these are our spiritual ancestors of the faith. These are the ones who then pointed to Jesus. And yet, we allow ourselves so often to fall into guilt and shame and think that we're further from God's mercy because of it. David covets another man's wife. God gave him everything, and yet he still wanted more. He still wanted what was legally and lawfully not his to take. And not only that, but he acts on his covetedness. Bathsheba becomes the object of someone else's agenda. It's what one scholar calls one of the most scandalous, or if not the most scandalous event in the whole Bible. This reminded me of one of my Old Testament professors once shared a story of a time when his son surprised him and his wife by declaring that he was going to read the whole Bible 
from cover to cover. He was going to read through the whole thing all by himself. And after a number of days, he came bounding down the stairs with his old copy of the scriptures, and he threw it onto the table, the kitchen table, and he looked at his parents with horror, and he said, do you know what's in this thing? Have you read this? But as the professor shared with us, these these characters aren't necessarily characters to emulate in every way. These characters remind us of our own human condition, that we are hopelessly lost on our own, that things are so horrifically messed up. And we see that in narrative after narrative as we go through these, things are not as they should be. What these stories show us, when we read these stories, we don't see the perfect leaders and kings following God perfectly. We see brutal failures, people who are aching and longing for God to do something, for God to restore what's going on, for God to make things right. Because what follows after David and Solomon is this lineage of of king after king after king that turns away from God that doesn't know how to lead with wisdom. There is no king, in other words, who can lead with the strength of Joshua and listen in wisdom to the prophets and be a perfect moral and righteous individual. No one comes close. And the promises, as you're reading through the Old Testament, these promises are looking hopelessly unfulfilled. The leaders are getting worse and worse. The Gentile nations aren't being blessed. God's name is not getting out there. The people are not being faithful. And it's this horrific downward spiral. We're grasping, we're gasping for any kind of assurance as we read through it. And you start to think that only God could make something of this mess. And that, friends, is the message of Christmas. Because he does. A pathway is made. A highway is cleared for a king. A perfect king. A king who has Gentile in his blood. A king whose purpose is to come not for the righteous but for the sinner. Who shows his love by coming through a lineage of messed up descendants to show us that he's bringing us a gospel of mercy. Again, most genealogies were meant to show a lineage that was pure from contamination. Here Jesus does the exact opposite. In the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, the very beginning, It is stated boldly that not only did Jesus come for sinners like us, but he came through sinners like us. And that should only scream at us that this gospel message and the God who gives it is one that uses the most unexpected people for the most unexpected purposes. A fellow pastor, Jen Vanderbeek, uh, once wrote a poem about these five women mentioned in Matthew's genealogy, and she writes this. Of course, of course, the man who broke all the rules while he walked on earth and listened, laughed, cried with, and made friends of women and let his feet be washed with perfume and took water from a well at midday and cured a 12-year bleed and returned life to a 12-year-old daughter and appeared risen first to women, of course. Of course the lineage of Christ breaks all the cultural rules and includes broken women, each one desperately in need of redemption 
salvation and restoration. Jesus did not come through the perfect lineage of men and women. And that was entirely and gloriously intentional. He comes through and he works within the midst of all of this scandalous messiness. He's not afraid of it. He doesn't shy away from it. See, on any normal occasion, if Matthew wanted to include four exemplary women, surely he would have at least mentioned the four normal matriarchs of Jewish history, those being the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. Those were the four matriarchs of Jewish history. Those are the matriarchs of Jewish tradition. Those are the women that should be mentioned, but not here. Here, Matthew gives the church the church, the new people of God, the new Israel, he gives us a crew of new matriarchs. And each one of their messy yet redemptive stories points to the kind of Messiah that we should expect because they point to the good news of the deep and unending mercy of God. The stories of these four women, five including Mary, preach the gospel of divine mercy. And the wife of Uriah is an important figure a hidden figure, an unexpected figure in pointing to that reality. Yet she would have never dreamed of this based on her own story. Tamar would never have dreamed of it. Rahab would never have dreamed of it. Ruth would never have dreamed of it. Bathsheba would never have dreamed of it. Mary would never have dreamed of it. Yet each one of these women recognized who God is. And when he was calling to them and calling them to a higher way, to a new way that enabled the promises of God to come forward, all of these women entrusted themselves, their lives, their families, their situations, everything into his hands. So if you take nothing from this series, please just take this that no matter how messy or uncomfortable or broken or scandalous or disappointing or hopeless our own situations can feel, our Lord's most frequent custom or habit is to work through it in ways that we often don't expect. Don't expect, in other words, this Christmas what you already know. Don't keep hoping only for what is comfortable and controllable and certain. Don't just look for the familiar. He's bigger than that. This is what Matthew is setting out to proclaim for us. That the little child who was born in the tiny and insignificant town of Bethlehem among field laborers and cattle is in fact the divine king himself. And based on his lineage... This should not surprise us. That the God who is over all, again, made himself incredibly small. Because his will was to become our God among us. To identify with us in all of our glorious messiness and to bring his good news of mercy to all who call on his name. In this season, expect for Expect and hope for and long for a king unlike any other. A king who is completely unfamiliar to anything else that we know of in history. Because who has ever seen a king like this? 
Who has ever seen a king like this or known a king like this one? A king who is the Lord God Almighty, the Holy Lord Almighty, yet who shows himself through the most unholy of people. Who meets us exactly where we are. Who identifies with us and who extends his mercy without holding anything back. He understands our brokenness. He understands our disappointments. As Scott Jose puts it, Jesus was born because of all that disappoints us. Jesus was born because of all the things that this broken world routinely takes away from us. So he says this same Lord is here for us, even now, ready to listen, ready to lament with us, ready to weep with us, ready to be disappointed with us. He's ready to be broken with us. That's why he came. This year in Advent, we are longing for our Lord's coming in ways that are highly unfamiliar to us. We are planning to celebrate his coming in ways that are uncomfortable, considering our normal traditions and our regular habits and comforts. But may this season serve as a reminder that our king came in the most unexpected and uncomfortable of ways, through the most unexpected and unlikely of people. And he still does. Even through the likes of you and I. May this season allow us to see him in a new way. A king whose kindness and affection reaches down into the deepest, darkest corners of our grief and our pain and whose mission is to extend his mercy to every inch of this earth. May we be reflectors of that mercy and may our hearts cry, Come, Emmanuel. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.